Hey, Jeremy, somebody reached out to your doctor friends. Should we give it a listen? Hey, doctor friends. So what's really going on with monkeypox? Everything I've seen online ranges from zero threat to go panic, buy more toilet paper. So what real concerns or precautions should I be taking? And, uh, you know, what risks as a new dad are there for my eight-month-old son? Great uh, question for the week. Something very topical. We uh, haven't at this point, I think, really focused on something that was really, really topical at the time. But I, I myself have a lot of monkeypox questions yeah. to you, Julie. Breaking news, man. Absolutely. What is this? Another outbreak? Let's talk about it. All right. So stay with us. We're going to talk everything monkeypox. Let's do it. Welcome to Your Doctor Friends, the show that teaches you to sniff out the garbage and answers all the questions that you wish you could call or text your doctor friend. My name's Julie Bruni. And I'm Jeremy Allen, and we are two physicians who work at a nationally ranked practice and take care of some of the world's greatest athletes. We know that you have questions, and we want to help. We want to be your doctor friends. So, Jeremy, I am so excited about our guest today. He's a, an old friend of mine. He just probably doesn't want me to say the word old friend, but we've known each other I'm for a while. <laughs> no, I'm calling myself old. So Rob Citrenberg, Dr. Citrenberg, is the executive medical director of infectious disease and prevention at Advocate Aurora Health. He's an MD. He went to University of Connecticut. He did his internal medicine residency and infectious disease fellowship at Rush. He is a trusted news source as an infectious disease specialist, has been on the news many times to give us wonderful information that is valid and evidence-based and kind. I was afraid of him when I was a resident and Dr. Citrenberg was the infectious disease specialist that I would consult all the time until I worked with him and did an, an ID rotation. And it was one of the best rotations I've ever done. And now I, I call Dr. Citrenberg or Rob a true friend, and I'm so happy to have him on the podcast. So Rob, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. I'm, I'm so jacked. I'm so happy to be here too. Thank, thank, I'm really, I'm so honored that you asked me to be on. Awesome. Well, let's dive right into it. Give us like the current numbers of the U.S. or globally, the cases of monkeypox. Give me the quick and dirty what's going on with it right now as of mid-August 2022. Sure. Yeah, I'm not really too concerned about monkeypox. It's going to have very little impact on the world, unlike COVID. It's just more of a, a harbinger of things to come with infectious diseases. This is how we're going to see dozens and dozens of things like monkeypox. Some might not be as bad, some might be worse. But it's pretty clear that's the direction we're going. So you know, monkeypox has been known for a long time. It's kind of a misnomer. It was never endemic in monkeys. It was discovered in research monkeys in the 1950s. First human case was in 1970 in Africa. And it's been endemic in a few countries in Central and West Africa since 1970. But then something happened earlier this year. It started to show up in Europe, mostly in population of men who have sex with men. And there are there cases appear in countries that where this disease was not endemic. So there's a lot of concern about that. The virus is very closely related to smallpox. And one of the theories about why this virus is spreading now is because nobody's immunizing smallpox anymore. There's really no natural immunity left. Nobody had native smallpox. And I, we stopped vaccinating, I think, around 1980. So there's very few people, if any, who have natural immunity, especially this is a very young population who's getting monkeypox, none of them have ever had smallpox vaccines. I think that's why it's spreading. But it's also different. You know, this is spread by contact, by person-to-person -person contact. It appears most cases are spread. Uh, you know, and I was on a call with the 
Chicago Department of Health today, and they have this kind of weird terminology. It's not, they don't consider it a sexually transmitted disease. It's, it's spread by sexual contact, but quote, not quite sexually transmitted. I'm not really sure the difference is. <laughs> Clearly relies on skin-to-skin contact for spread, direct contact with infected lesions. I guess the nice thing about it is you really have to be symptomatic in order to spread it. Mm. Unlike COVID, there's really no asymptomatic period. And I don't want to say you have to try to get monkeypox, but it's easily avoidable. If you mm-hmm. eliminate risk factors uh, from your activities, you won't get monkeypox. You won't get it from walking down the street. You won't get it from riding up in an elevator with somebody. You really, if you are engaged in high-risk behaviors and high-risk populations, and I'm not trying to stigmatize any populations. I don't think that's that's worthwhile at all. But you have to be aware of what your risks are. And I will tell you that a lot of the patients that we've seen who've had monkeypox, we do take sexual histories. Many have had you know, 10 or 12 or 15 new sexual partners in the month prior to the onset of disease. So you know, sexual promiscuity does is certainly a risk factor for it. But it, I guess the good news is, and people are, are kind of freaked out about it, but the good news is it's not really very highly transmissible, nowhere near as much as COVID. I think as of today, there are about 14,000 cases in the U.S., almost 900 in the state of Illinois. Chicago is a big epicenter, particularly on the north side of Chicago. You know, I work at Advocate, and we have a very large population around the Illinois Masonic Service Area. It services the north side of Chicago. And we've actually set up a really wonderful clinic there for diagnosis and, and treatment and vaccination of patients with monkeypox. So the, the, st- the folks there have been fantastic about really engaging and, and taking care of these patients who have it. But for the general population, if you don't engage in high-risk behavior and if you don't have household contacts with monkeypox, because there have been a few kids who have gotten it, but it appears all from household contacts of an adult who has it, your risk of getting it is really, really low. And it's interesting to talk about like what we're calling sexual contact versus sexual transmitted. Like you're just, you're talking about be- behaviors where people have pro- like skin to skin contact with each other, bare skin to bare skin for the most part, which is like, I almost like don't want to, I wish we had a different word other than even sexual. It's like intimate contact or let- <laughs> Correct. I think that's a great way to look at it just by intimate contact, which is basically prolonged close contact. You know, if you, let's say you work in a doctor's office where there's a patient or monkey pox and it was mm-hmm. on the table and you don't wear gloves and you're taking off the table paper or you, you shake it and you can actually shake the virus. That's another way to get it too, but right. pretty uncommon. But I think you're right. It's really, it, it requires intimate contact with somebody primarily yeah. to get it. Right. Julie and I both do sports medicine and, and the, the Petri dish of skin infections for sports medicine is wrestling. Yeah. Is that something where like wrestlers should be keeping an eye out for something like this? You know, again, I, I think it's, you really can't spread it unless you are symptomatic, unless you have a rash. And mm-hmm. for most people now, a lot of people have the rash is, is not all over the body. It might be covered by clothing. You can't see it, but it, in many patients it's disseminated. So it's almost like a scarlet letter that you have, mm-hmm. have monkeypox. I, you know, I think, Jim, what you're referring to is like herpes gladiatorum, right. where you can get herpes. And, and a lot of times that's because the, the lesions are, may not be as visible. They're very small. Uh, and you can have a lot of virus in those lesions, and that can be spread by direct contact too. So yeah, if somebody had monkeypox who was wrestling, they could absolutely transmit it to other people wrestling. But I think it'd be fairly easy to identify, and hopefully that person would be excluded. The other thing too is that, you know, unlike herpes, people who have monkeypox are pretty sick. They have fever, mm-hmm. malaise, 
lymphadenopathy. So, you know, you could have, you could have herpes labialis and not even have any symptoms at all. But if you had monkeypox, you'd be pretty sick. So hopefully you wouldn't be competing right. in a sporting event if you were feeling sick and you had a rash all over your body. So how are we even diagnosing this? Like, what's the gold standard of diagnostics? Is it just look test? Like, how are you, how would you diagnose somebody, Rob? Well, I think after you've seen a bunch of patients with it, you can kind of get the sense of what it looks for, but it's really still important to make an accurate diagnosis, which involves scraping the lesions, putting them in a cup and sending them off to the, the, in Illinois, to the IDPH lab, who then does what we call an orthopox virus screen. So it's, the monkeypox virus is in the orthopox virus family, like smallpox. If it's orthopox positive, it's then sent to the CDC for confirmation that it's in fact monkeypox. We have had quite a few patients who have had other types of rashes that they thought were monkeypox that weren't. One person with chickenpox, another person with some sort of allergic thing. So not all the cases are monkeypox, but it's still really important to make that diagnosis. It's fairly easy to do. Our clinicians have gotten, at least in our clinics where we're seeing a lot of it, they've gotten pretty used to the, the protocol and how to diagnose it. To my understanding, we have a vaccine for monkeypox, or at least something that works towards monkeypox. Can you talk a little bit about the vaccine and, and maybe the criteria to yeah. who should be getting it and that kind of thing? Yeah, there's actually two vaccines here. I mean, and one that we use primarily, actually, I hope it's the only one we use, is called Geneos, which is uh, was developed as a smallpox vaccine, but it's also licensed to prevent monkeypox in the U.S. It's a live virus vaccine, but it's replication incompetent, so there can't be any viral replication. So it's pretty safe to use in immunocompromised persons. And that is the vaccine of choice. It's given in two doses, at least four weeks apart. The problem with that vaccine has been supply. And, you know, this kind of goes in a bigger issue. You thought that with the, the vaccine experience with COVID, you thought the CDC would get their act together. They haven't, or the U.S. government, the national stockpile. They lost a lot of doses of this vaccine. They were left on, on warehouses in other countries and just went to expire. And maybe more importantly, their vaccine response was very slow at the federal level. The time to intervene with vaccine was when there were 20, 30, 40 cases of monkeypox where you could see this was going to become an epidemic. And what they did is they did a, a uh, they chose a wait and see approach. And by the time they decided to vaccinate. It had already spread throughout the population. So we've been limited with the supply of vaccine. Just recently, and I think we're going to start to do this next week, they discovered that if you give one-fifth of the dose intradermally, you can get the same immune response as giving a full dose subcutaneously. So you can increase your supply by fivefold. It's not based on super hard science, but it's reasonably good. Uh, so we're going to start to do that to try and save the supply, to try to increase the supply. But I will tell you, we've noticed in the last week, the demand for the vaccines down a lot in our clinics. We have a lot more open spots for vaccination. So I don't know if people are just, everyone who's wanted to get vaccinated has, uh, they just lost interest in it at this point. So we'll see what the demand is going forward. There's another vaccine that's called ACAM2000 that I hope we never have to use. This is a live virus vaccine but it's replication competent. So uh, you can act, it's extremely contagious. You can get a smallpox actually because it's a smallpox vaccine from the person who gets vaccinated. Like it can leak out of their arm and you can get it. It's super contagious. So that would only be used in really a last resort type situation. I think there should be enough supply of Geneos going forward, especially with the increasing the, the dosing by using only one fifth of the dose intradermally. There probably should be enough Geneos to go around and Hopefully, they're making more somewhere. 
Are there criteria to get the vaccine? Meaning like if 10 of us showed up and we all wanted it, are they going to try to preferentially choose certain people kind of like COVID was immunocompromised and, and older people and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's really designed for primarily for post-exposure prophylaxis. And it doesn't have to be a known exposure. It can be a suspected exposure. You might have been, somebody might have been at a party where it turns out there were some people at monkeypox um, and they're concerned. So, you know, technically just being in a high-risk population is not enough to qualify for the vaccine. You have to have had a reasonable exposure. But I will tell you this, and we saw the same experience with COVID. People are not always truthful. They just want to, they want to get the vaccine, so they'll kind of make up a story about what the risk factors are. And honestly, I don't have any problem with that at all. If they're yeah. if they have enough initiative to want to go get a vaccine, give them the vaccine. Right. And we should get hopefully be able to get more. I applaud people who are who are proactive in in going to get the vaccine. So and that happened with COVID too. People were being untruthful about their occupation. And I remember initially it was reserved for healthcare workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people are not being too truthful about that. And they got the vaccine anyway. I don't think it's a big deal with monkeypox vaccine. I think anybody who wants it should get it. But I will say there, there's still no reason at all for the general population to get vaccinated. And I've had a lot of people ask me about that. Should I get vaccinated? I'm like, well, you know, unless you're in a rave or something, or you've got a lot of <laughs> close contacts and you don't have any specific risk factors, yeah. you don't need to get vaccinated. We had an inquiry from, I think, our uh, oncology service line. They wanted to know if they should vaccinate all their oncology patients because mm-hmm. they're immunocompromised. And the answer is no, unless there's specific risk factors. So within that high risk population, I think it's reasonable personally for anybody in that population to get vaccinated. Yeah, I love that you touched on that because I, I think sitting here, if I was listening and I was in a high risk population, so if I was a man who had sex with man, men and 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 maybe was having higher amount of partners or whatever, I feel like I'd want to get vaccinated. It would feel weird if I showed up and wanted to get vaccinated and somebody told me I couldn't because I hadn't had an exposure yet. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the way that you phrased that was wonderful because I think yeah. being proactive is probably better. You know, right. It's not, this is not a trial, right? It's not, you don't have to take an oath. <laughs> you don't have to you know, swear to tell the truth. It's just basically trying to use our best judgment in helping as many people in the population as we can. And I also think the last point on that is, again, I think that really hammering home that the general population probably doesn't need the vaccine can hopefully open up lines for the higher risk populations, right? And so mm-hmm. make sure that they have access to resources because yeah. we all saw pictures, especially like in New York and whatnot, where there's just so much confusion about who could get one and how many lines and all the things to go. It reminded you of COVID vaccines when it first came out. And it's just, you just don't want to see that. So for the general population, like let, let's let the higher risk people make sure that they can get the vaccine. And for those of people who fit into this higher risk, certainly consider getting it, I think. Totally. It may have been worse than COVID vaccine. But part of that also is just the bad infrastructure of public health in this country, both local and national levels, primarily because they're understaffed and underfunded. There aren't enough people to work in public health. So, you know, there might, for example, be a clinic that has vaccines, but they don't have any staff to administer them. And I don't know if you noticed, but I think yesterday the CDC just announced that they're kind of reorganizing their whole group. They're they're restructuring, and they for the first time admitted that they're not doing a great job. Yeah, they're not present. Like they just they don't get it. Like you know, when I go on the news, I just try to be honest and I try to tell people things that are practical. You know, if nine of, if nine out of ten people are not wearing masks then there's no point to have a mask mandate, right? Because they're not doing it. So you have to look at what people are doing and then be able to adjust your policies based on that. And they failed miserably on that. 
since the beginning of COVID. They just, they haven't been able to properly communicate and to read what the population is doing. I think had they been doing that, they would have had a lot better buy-in from the public. Mm -hmm. They just, you know, finally now that COVID seems to be flaming out, at least somewhat, uh, now they're reorganizing the CDC. They're trying to do a better job well, that's what your doctor friends is doing, man. That's This podcast is trying to do better messaging of these important topics, right? Yeah. Relating to people. I can't take complete credit for this, but you mentioned the, the vaccines going to waste, the ones that expired. And I watched John Oliver and he referenced, it's just so sad to hear all those vaccines go to waste when there's endemic populations in Africa that could have used them. Yes. Oh my God! I, he doubt. said that, and I, yeah. I fell off the couch. I was like, "Oh my God, he's so right." Yeah, there was there was some articles in the New York Times. They were all over this about there are apparently millions of doses that expired. They were left on shelves. I think there's a warehouse in Denmark of all places. But you're exactly right. Those those vaccines were were going to waste. They're going to expire, and they certainly could have been used in those populations in Africa, and they weren't. But that's kind of that's kind of where we are. Sadly. Yep. One more thing, and then I want Julie to, to ask a question, but you mentioned some kids getting it. And I think even in our initial question with Jake there, you mentioned his kid going to school. Some of us have kids going to school. I mean, I have a two-year-old who's in daycare and a five-year-old about to start kindergarten. My five-year-old's pretty hygienic. My two-year-old is anti-hygienic. <laughs> so, is, you know, like, is my anti-hygienic child, uh, uh, should I be worried or like, should daycares be changing what they do or anything like that? No, I don't think so. I think the best thing you can do is scream. And so, Ask the parents, does the kid have a fever? Do they have any swollen lymph nodes? Do they have a rash? And hopefully, they're not going to be sending their kids to daycare anyway, even before monkeypox. You know, you never know. But uh, but hopefully, they weren't going to send their kid if they were sick with a fever or rash anyway. But just by screening is, is probably the best way to do it. Uh, you know, if you did have a kid in daycare who had monkeypox, there obviously is the potential for spread. But I think the probability of that happening is extremely low uh, and would only maybe happen in isolated cases. I don't think there's any situation where you're going to have massive outbreaks of it just can't happen based on what we know about the transmission, like massive outbreaks of monkeypox in school settings or workplace settings like we did with COVID. Or we had, you know, a church choir singing and 75 people in the church choir got COVID four days later. That's not really possible with monkeypox. So. Could there be an isolated case of this thing like that? Sure. But I hate to say it, it'd probably be due to irresponsible parents who don't recognize that their kid has a rash. What if it's like a, a naked wrestling church choir? Would that be like problematic to you? Is this, is this a personal question? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm going to stop joking. But I guess I, Julie's on a spiritual journey. I am. Yeah, it sounds, she sounds I like it. Yeah, exactly. We, we meet in Taos. I just wanted to be very, very explicit about, and I know you touched on it before, but about how this is actually transmitted. Like the transmission seems to be, you have to be pretty acutely ill and it's pre it's usually pretty damn obvious that you are acutely ill and you're going to get it through skin to skin contacts, uh, contact or like mucous membrane contact. Is that like a big part of it? But it's not necessarily yep. droplet. Like how are people getting this thing? First of all, that we didn't really know much about the transmission of monkeypox until this because and I think, Jeremy, your point about the, the wasted vaccines, nobody really paid much attention to monkeypox in Africa. Um, the best we know about it, it can be transmitted by droplet contact, but with prolonged close contact. So, you know, I think that's intimate. So that theoretically it could be spread by the respiratory route, not airborne like mm -hmm. chicken pox or measles, but 
by prolonged close contact. So there could be some respiratory shedding, but it's, it would be it would require probably a good amount of exposure to get it. I think by far the more likely mode of transmission is direct skin-to-skin contact or skin-to-surface contact. You know, unlike COVID, COVID, in the beginning of COVID, we were concerned about possible contact transmission. People were spraying their Amazon packages with Lysol and leaving them out in the hallway for three days. <laughs> Turns out we didn't need to do any of that anyway because it's not efficiently spread by contact at all. This virus actually is. So you could get it from contaminated surfaces. That's why in our in our doctor's offices where we are seeing patients with monkeypox, we're super cautious about you know, not shaking that table paper and making sure everything's properly disinfected. So you could get it from contact with the contaminated bed linens. But if you're careful, you should be able to avoid that, certainly in a healthcare setting. Good answer. Good answers. Yeah. So if somebody comes to the, the clinic and they get diagnosed with monkeypox, and at that point, you're probably not vaccinating them because they already have it. What are you doing for them? What What are their options? There is a treatment available. It's called T-pox. And it's also, it's, a, it's an oral medicine that was actually developed to treat smallpox. Not all patients need treatment. And so for you, have, people have localized disease. Uh, we typically don't prescribe treatment, but for people who might have disseminated disease, uh, some people can actually get eye disease. So you, you'd want to use treatment for that. Or if there's a lot, you know, just a very high burden of disease just disseminated, then you can certainly give T-pox. So the, the problem, T-pox works really well. And the you know preliminary reports of that, it really is very effective at shortening the course of disease by a lot. The problem with T-pox is that it's investigational. It's not FDA approved. It's not even under emergency use authorization. So it's an unbelievable pain in the ass to acquire it. So I can tell you in Illinois, hmm. it's all being distributed by local health departments, not even by Illinois Department of Public Health. They're like, tell the local health departments, you guys do it. So every local health department is distributing it. And in order to be able to prescribe it, you have to have a principal investigator at your site. You've got to fill out all the FDA forms, Jesus. CDC forms. You've got to fill out all these forms. You've got to do follow-up with the patient, turn in all the forms because like, and that's just, that's the protocol for every investigational drug. It's very, very labor intensive to prescribe it. We've, we've given it our system to a lot of patients, but it's a lot of work to do it. Doesn't it feel like it should have an EUA? Yeah. Doesn't it feel like it's something that should have that? It will as soon as monkeypox goes away, then it's going to have the EUA. <laughs> we don't right? need it anymore. <laughs> just, like, just like, you know, Paxlovid came out as now. soon as the Omicron surge was over. Then, yeah. oh, here's Paxlovid. Right. Right. So that's when it's going to, again, FDA is super slow. CDC is super slow. They just, they're, they're always behind. So could have it had an EUA by now? Sure but it doesn't. So it's still investigational. The paperwork is, is a lot, but we're still, we work with, so, you know, it's a little problematic too. So for example, in our system, we have a couple of hospitals in the city of Chicago. We have three hospitals in Cook County, but not in Chicago. So for the Chicago hospitals, we have to deal with Chicago Department of Public Health. It's been great, by the way. For the other ones, we deal with the Cook County Department of Public Health. We might deal with Lake County, DuPage County, Kane County, Lake County, all these separate Departments of Public Health. So it's really been a nightmare administratively to try to manage it, but that's because it's an investigational drug and they were they were really slow to get it. But I'll bet you probably as soon as like it's very clear, you look at that curve of monkeypox, as soon as it's very clear it's going away, we'll see an EUA for T-pox. Perfect timing. And not all heroes wear capes. Mm -hmm. So the symptom that gets the most attention on the media is is clearly the pain that's associated with this. Does T-pox help with the pain? It should because it, it'll help prevent new lesions from occurring. So you can figure the pain 
is just a function of how many lesions you have. And it's also the location too, which for, I think people have mucosal lesions get a lot of pain. So whether it's, it's in their mouth or there's perirectal, wherever it is, mucosal lesions, those are ones that are very painful. So yeah, it, it seems like the experience we've had, again, most of this is anecdotal right now, but trying to compile data, but it seems like it's had a very beneficial effect in reducing the numbers of lesions and consequently reducing the amount of pain. If you're listening, mucosal meaning like think about where the like really slippery stuff is in your mouth and then think about other places in your body that have stuff like that. That's a, that's a perfect way to explain it. It's a great family medicine answer right Dumb there. down the mucosa, baby. Yeah. <laughs> that's another bumper sticker we need. <laughs> no one will understand if they haven't listened to this episode. <laughs> Let's talk about the resurgence of some vaccine preventable diseases like polio. What the fuck's up with that? There was a case last month that was reported. I think it happened in June in New York State. In Rockland County, actually, where I think there's only about a 50% vaccination rate for polio, I think there's a lot of parents there who don't believe in vaccinations. There was a single case. They've also found it, found the virus in some wastewater. That's become pretty trendy now. You study wastewater, you can actually get a pretty good sense of what's circulating. And there was some polio in the wastewater. Yeah, but you can get a lot of information from it about trends. So it's quite possible there have been more asymptomatic cases of, of polio. There's only one symptomatic case has been reported. I'm not too concerned about any sort of widespread outbreak of polio because still the majority of the population is vaccinated. Even childhood vaccination should be pretty durable. It doesn't seem to wane at all. But in that unvaccinated population, there's going to be risk. And this particular person, I think, was infected with a vaccine-related strain. So we stopped using oral polio vaccine, live polio vaccine, I think around the year 2000 in this country. We only use inactivated polio vaccine. But there's still many countries in the world that use that live oral polio vaccine because it's super cheap. And so the strain of polio that that person got was a vaccine-related strain. So most likely that person came into contact with somebody who had gotten oral polio vaccine in another country. So, you know, I think it's, I'm not really too worried about a widespread outbreak. It's just, to me, it's just another indication of a giant step backwards for public health in this country. And all the, the uproar about COVID vaccinations, the anti-vaxxer movement, we will absolutely see resurgence of vaccine-preventable diseases already started. I know that I'm talking to my colleagues in pediatrics, vaccination rates are, are even childhood vaccinations are, rates are, are miserably low in a lot of areas. So everyone jumped on this bandwagon. Well, I don't want the COVID vaccine. I don't want the flu shot. I don't want my kid to get MMR. I don't want my kid to get all this other stuff. So what does that mean? It means you're going to see resurgence of vaccine-preventable diseases. And I think part of it is, I think a lot of people are going to be in for a shock. There was this perception from the very beginning that COVID was not serious, that it was a conspiracy, that it was just a cold, you know, even though a million people in this country died from it. But wait till an anti-vaxxer gets polio or a kid gets polio and gets paralyzed from it. You know, nobody's old enough to remember polio. My, my parents told me what it was like to with polio in the 1950s and parents were terrified their kids were going to get polio then so they wouldn't let them go to community swimming pools like public pools because it's spread by fecal oral contact and they were just terrified of getting polio and the polio vaccine was the this godsend and people really embraced vaccines back in those days but look where we are now compared to like the 1950s or early 1960s we've gone completely backwards. And I think when some of these anti-vaxxers see their kids getting severe diseases like measles, rubella, polio, may change their opinion about the usefulness of, of vaccines and preventing disease. 
So, you know, I think we'll probably see some more cases of polio. We'll see measles. We have measles outbreaks every now and then. See rubella. You know, all these vaccine-preventable diseases that you thought were gone, but the only reason why they're gone is because people have been vaccinated. It doesn't take much to bring it back into an unvaccinated population. The big discrepancy for me really comes also with the type of vaccines, right? So like we talked about the CDC's uh, difficulty with communication. And I think early on, we all felt that the vaccines of COVID was like, okay, well, I get it. And it's 98% effective and I'm not going to be able to get it. And so the goal just became not getting it. And then gradually we learned that that's not what the goal was. The goal was to not die from it. And so the vaccines are very effective at that. But I think there's a hard line difference between the COVID vaccine and like the polio vaccine. Right. The polio vaccine, you will not get polio if you've had the polio vaccine. That's and like there's exactly just right. no ifs, ands or buts about that. So this whole concept of like vaccines don't work like no polio vaccine <laughs> will prevent you from getting polio. So should you be worried about polio in the wastewater? Not if you're vaccinated, not if you're vaccinated. And the reason behind that, Jeremy, is because that virus doesn't mutate uh, nothing like what COVID does. And I think you're right. Going back to your point about the CDC, I, I think they messed up on the messaging from the very beginning. So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember it was like November of 2020. It was like a Monday morning. I woke up and I flipped on the the news and there's this big story about how the Pfizer vaccine is 95% effective in preventing COVID. And that that's still, that was a great, great day in public health. Mm-hmm. Um, the Moderna vaccine followed a few weeks later with the same types of numbers. And in fact, in the, that first wave with the Wuhan strain of the virus, those vaccines absolutely prevented you from getting the disease, not just from getting sick from it. You didn't get the disease. But what happened is the virus changed, but the vaccine didn't. So what happened is you're getting some partial immunity, not enough to prevent you from getting the disease, but enough to prevent you from getting sick from it. And to this day, I mean, this virus now looks nothing at all like what that original Wuhan strain was. But guess what? If you're vaccinated and boosted with those original vaccines, you're not, in all likelihood, you are not going to get hospitalized and you're not going to die from this disease. And that's still, to this day, absolutely the case. So I think CDC was very slow. They were kind of in denial of these so-called breakthrough infections. They said, oh, they only happen less than 5% of people when everybody's whole family had it. Like, how could that be just 5% of people when I've got four people in my family who have it? who have a breakthrough infection. They were pretty slow to message that. And I've been saying this for a long time. I say it on the news. I say it to anybody who wants to hear it. <laughs> they need to stop report reporting the numbers of cases. I don't care how many cases there are. By the way, the number is completely made up because 90% of the people who are tested positive are doing it at home. Right. I had COVID back in December. I did a home test. I didn't tell me. I didn't report it anywhere. So we don't even know how many cases there are. So Stop reporting numbers of cases. The only thing that matters to our population and public health is hospitalizations and deaths from COVID. That's all that matters Mm -hmm. because hospitalizations affect what we can do in hospitals. If hospitals are getting full of COVID patients, it impacts operations. You can't do elective surgeries. I mean, Julie, you know what happened at at Rush in the in the yeah. very beginning, like you, the you know, the, there were no like the surgeries, still. like no people were going out. Of, they felt like they're going to go out of business and maybe never recover from it. Right. So hospitalizations are always important to keep an eye on, just for make operations, making sure we can take care of people who come in with acute MIs and strokes and things, and then deaths. Really, the bottom line is how many people are dying from this. And even though in this last surge the cases were going up and up and up, deaths are actually coming down. So, and I look in our, in our hospitals, you know, we track the daily number of COVID patients in our hospital, but I'll tell you, 
The last time we looked, about half of those were asymptomatic. They weren't even in the hospital for COVID. They were just discovered from pre-procedure tests and other things. Only, a, you know, in the early days of COVID, I'd walk through the ICU at Lutheran General. I was practicing at the time. The entire ICU was full of COVID patients. And in some, there were like two people in a room. There were two COVID patients in an ICU room. So you might have like a, you know, a 20 bed ICU and have 36 COVID patients in it. Now you have one or two COVID patients in the ICU. A lot of them are there because they're chronically ill or they're there for other, you know, they started out with something else in the ICU. So to this day, if you're vaccinated, boosted, and by the way, if you've also had COVID, it's kind of like the uh, the uh, cherry on top because that really boosts your immunity. Your chances of getting sick from COVID, being hospitalized from COVID, dying from COVID are extraordinarily small. And that's the message that we have to get out. Yeah, you can get it, but you're not going to die from it. And I think that's the message that the CDC hasn't really, up until maybe very, very recently, hasn't put out. They have this kind of sense of people living in fear. And that's a completely wrong approach. Just be practical. When I go to restaurants, I, I haven't worn a mask at a restaurant in like forever because I'm vaccinated and boosted. I had COVID. Like I'm comfortable. And if I get it, I'm very confident. If I get it again, I'm very confident it's going to be a mild illness. So I'm going to go out and live my life. And I think that's what CDC should have been preaching all along. Now, I should, I should to qualify that, there's a huge difference in the pre-vaccination versus post-vaccination era. In the pre-vaccination era, I don't think you had much choice but to restrict indoor gatherings and restaurants and all these other things. But once people started getting vaccinated and we saw that you really didn't get COVID or if you got it, you didn't get sick, it's like, you know, go nuts, go enjoy your life. And, you know, for people who are individuals who are at high risk of getting really sick, still need to be careful. If I had an elderly immunocompromised family member or friend or something, I'd say, you know what? When you go to the grocery store, you should wear a mask because you individually are at risk. But for people who aren't at high risk of getting sick and you're vaccinated, you're boosted, go enjoy yourself. I wish they'd stop reporting also like all the celebrities and famous people who get COVID. Like you can get the news ticker and like, hey, guess who got COVID? And you're like, I just it's just reinforcing that it's like not part of life. Like it just stop doing that. Old. I think that I put it yesterday or the day before. Yesterday or the day before, like they said, uh, Jill Biden has COVID. Like, who the fuck cares? Like, yeah, so right. she's COVID. <laughs> I mean, of course, Jill Biden has it. Joe Biden just had it. Like, surprise. Why? Right. Of course she does. Like, who cares? And it yeah, it who doesn't cares? matter. Yeah. And right. I think that's where you have, and to, my, to your point, that's how you have to stop reporting these celebrities who are getting it. You know, you stop reporting the numbers. All, all I care about is hospitalizations and deaths. I don't care about how many cases in the community because it's not really very relevant. To me, it's just the the it's the end result that matters. How many people are getting sick from it? And I think we've been successful for the most part in dumbing down this virus between vaccination and a lot of infection, particularly that Omicron surge last winter. Um, we've been pretty good in dumbing down the virus. So kind of what you wanted, right? You just wanted it to be a virus that can spread but doesn't make people sick, kind of like the flu. And in fact, you can make a good argument right now that the morbidity with with the current strains of COVID are considerably less than influenza. So it's kind of evolving into a more typical coronavirus, of which there are many. Can I get a celebrity like uh, uh, some sort of infectious disease ticker? Can I can I know when somebody has strep or an ear infection too? Can I just get, yeah. can I get it all? I mean, if I'm going to get their COVID status, I want everything. 
Yeah, let's you know, I, think, I think when the president has COVID, especially our current president who's old. Who's 80 years I, you old, know, yes. I think that was reasonable. That's that's a reasonable sure. news story. Sure. But, you know, all these other like movie stars, athletes, like, who cares? Yeah. I'm sure the question that all my patients would be asking is, when can I take my damn mask off in the doctor's office? It's a really good question. The, the doctor's office is a different environment. The hospital is a different environment. You remember... When we're and I get that question almost every single day, but yeah. just remember that when we're we're taking care of vulnerable people, and so we're taking care of people with cancer and yes. otherwise immunocompromised. So I, th- I think we have a special duty to protect those people. You know, I will tell you in our hospitals and in hospitals around the country, I can't tell you how many organ transplant patients were infected by either staff or family members who came in to visit them and weren't either weren't wearing masks or weren't wearing them properly. And a lot of them died. So these transplant patients and other immunocompromised people. So I think we are in a in healthcare, you know, it's our duty to protect our patients best we can. Uh, Does that mean we're going to be wearing masks permanently in doctor's offices? No. Seasonally, probably. You know, I am definitely Neither of you are old enough to remember. This is like the old guy story. But when I was a kid, <laughs> you go to the dentist. The dentist didn't wear gloves. They didn't wear a mask. They didn't put their fingers in your mouth. <laughs> in your mouth. Oh. No. You, you didn't know that, really? Where did you grow up, Rob? Did you grow up on the moon? In Connecticut. And no, Ugh. doctors didn't start wearing gloves until the HIV epidemic in like the early 1980s in dentists. And they probably complained about it, too. They were probably like, it doesn't feel good. I can't feel your teeth right. with my, it doesn't feel good on right. me. Kind of like so, wearing other you things. You know, when I was a kid, like the dentist put his fingers in your mouth and you didn't Blech. think there's anything wrong with that because that's just the way they did it. Well, now, if they did that, you'd have them arrested for battery, <laughs> right? If they, if they put, totally. put their fingers, <laughs> they put your, their fingers in your mouth. So now it's the norm that your dentist wears gloves and a mask, right? When they work on you. So mm-hmm. I think it's going to be the norm, at least seasonally, that yeah. maybe in the doctor's office, people wear masks. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, outside of healthcare, I think the the burden for masks is on individuals who are at risk. If you know that you're at high risk, those are the people who should wear masks. And if you can, and this is why masks. I think mask mandates actually were very important in the pre-vaccination era, but not important now. And the reason is, if you think about it, if if you go to the grocery store, and every person who's at risk for getting severe COVID is wearing a mask and wearing like a good mask, a KN95 or an N95. Like every person that stores cancer who's on immunosuppressors is wearing a mask. What is the incremental benefit of having everybody else in that store wear a mask? The, the answer is none, right? And that's why you don't need a general mask mandate. That's why now in the post-vaccination era, you can shift that burden to the people who are at risk. And going forward, I think that's what that's what we're going to see. I, I can't ever envision another scenario, certainly with COVID, maybe with any other virus, where we have massive shutdowns like we had before or massive mask mandates because we learned that the best way to protect yourself is to protect yourself, if that makes sense. One question I've gotten a lot, if I'm eligible for a booster now, should I wait until closer to the fall and wait for like the newer vaccines or should I get the booster? Yeah, that's a great question. I've heard that a lot, too. According to the, the CDC guidelines, if you're over 50, which I am, you should go get your second no. booster right now. You should go get your second booster right now and not wait for the new boosters to come out. And I don't know that that makes a lot of sense. I think it's more individualized risk. Now, so I, 
I had COVID last December. I had two primary vaccines. I had a booster. I'm not getting another booster until the new ones come out. It, it just doesn't make any sense. You want that iPhone 14 booster, right? That's what you're waiting out for? Maybe it'd be this, like, this concept of being over-vaccinated. You can get too many vaccines. It might have an adverse effect on your immune system. You may not develop as good an immune response if you're over-vaccinated. So they've been saying, yeah, you can get a you know, standard booster today, and if the new ones come out in a week, you can go with the new one. And I don't know there's any science that says that's efficacious or safe to do that. So I think, again, it's tailored to individual risk. I would say that for people who are at risk for getting severe infection with COVID, probably get the second booster now, not wait for the new ones. I'm going to wait for the new ones. And I think if you're not at especially high risk, it's certainly reasonable to wait for the new ones, which, you know, then now they're saying late September, early October, those things should have been out like August, like this month. And these are the Omicron-based boosters that they're bivalent. They probably, there means there's multiple strains of the two different strains of the virus in there in the vaccine. So I I think they will be successful, but I I don't, if you're not at especially high risk for getting severe COVID, especially if you've already had it, there's that additive effect of having had COVID and being vaccinated, you're like super immune. I don't think there's any necessarily any risk to run out and get a booster now, but I think it is important when the new ones come out, if you're due for another booster to get one then. So, you know, Rob, to, to kind of wrap things up, I just read an article in The Atlantic about, you know, are we in so, in COVID soft closing? Do you agree with something like that? And or do you have any like predictions about specifically with COVID? Like, where do you think we're headed over the next couple seasons? You know, I'm glad you mentioned The Atlantic. They've had the best articles on COVID since the very beginning. Their, yeah. their COVID collection, you could probably go back and look at all of them. They have had the best. I, I read as many of those COVID publications as I can from The Atlantic. I think they've been phenomenal. Very interesting, fair, mm-hmm. common sense, not mm-hmm. political. So where are we now? It's not going to ever go away. Really, it's going to become endemic. I think it already is endemic. I'm pretty certain, at least here in this country, the pandemic portion is over. There's going to be surges, probably seasonal. That's we're a little bit worried about the fall and winter. So it's not ever going to go away. But I think the pandemic portion is over. And so we have to learn how to live with it, right? So we're starting to, even in, in the way we practice in our hospitals, we're starting to move forward to learn how to live with endemic COVID. And just like we deal with influenza, which is endemic, and all these other viruses that are endemic. So it's very unlikely it's going to go away. A big reason for that is that there are animal hosts, intermediate hosts, like white-tailed deer, believe it or not, that where this virus hangs out. So once you have an intermediate host, it's very difficult to eradicate it from the population. But regardless... I think it's really at that point where we're endemic. We have to learn how to live with it. You got to stay vaccinated. You got to stay boosted. And if you are at high risk, you got to still be careful. One of the lessons we've learned, I think, through this, if if you're at high risk, you should always be careful because it's not just COVID. It's flu. It's anything else that you can get. But if you look at the the number, and again, I don't care about the numbers of cases. All I care about is hospitalizations and deaths. And I can tell you in our system, our hospitalization has been very steady over the last three months, almost a straight line. Now they're starting to come down. Deaths are are way down compared to what they once were. So I think we're kind of already at that decent place where we can start to just learn how to live with it. And I think what you'll see the next step is to see hospitals start to soften some of their precautions they've had in place. You know, at our hospitals, we've loosened up some of the precautions. You're going to start to see more hospitals eliminate pre-procedure testing. So right now, if you 
if you are going in for a procedure, you still have to get a COVID test before your procedure. We're going to start to see that go away probably very soon, next couple of months. I think you'll see a lot of healthcare systems start to do that to say, hey, we know it's around, but it's just something that's there, not causing a lot of people to be sick. And the other thing, too, I should mention about that is in the very beginning of COVID, one of the reasons why we had to be so careful about doing all that testing before procedures is because we didn't have any PPE. We didn't have any N95s. I don't know if you guys remember, but at the beginning, you know, they'd give you one N95, and so you got to wear this for like a month. Yeah. Um, they're intended for single disgusting. use. So people were putting them in their pockets, and they were so disgusting gross. and had holes in them. PPE is not an issue. We have more N95s than we could possibly know what to do with. So instead of testing everybody, if you're doing a procedure, just wear an N95 and eye protection. Then you're all set. So I think you'll see us really adapting to this kind of new COVID world. And it's it's not going to go away, but it's going to be something that we're just going to live with and learn how to live with. I think we're already learning how to live with it. So is the worst over? I'd say absolutely. But this is what I'm worried about. It's not COVID. It's the next one. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I'm not... I'm not sure we've learned any lessons in we being public health at federal levels. I don't think we've learned any lessons. And the monkeypox experience kind of proves that. You'd think that a new epidemic occurring two years after COVID, there might be, you might have learned something. It doesn't appear that that's the case from what's been done. You know, there was, um, there's this guy, Dr. Mike Osterholm. So he's a, he's from Minnesota. He's a well-known international public health expert. And back in 2006, he was on the Oprah Winfrey show. And I only know this because I, I didn't watch, I'll be honest, I don't, I never watched the Oprah show, but I did happen to watch this video. And he was on that show talking about the next pandemic. Now, he thought it was going to be an avian influenza pandemic. But what he described in 2006 matched what we saw with COVID, like word for word. It was, it was scary. Actually, people should go look at that video. It's on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, Mike Osterholm and, and the Oprah show. Even in terms of things like shutting down supply chain issues, not having water, not having toilet paper, every last thing. And he thought it was going to be from a, an influenza virus. And what's to stop there from being the next pandemic with an avian influenza virus? Nothing. Mm-hmm. It's the way people live. It's the way people travel. It's the way people are you know, dirty. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing to stop that influenza virus being the next one. So I'm not worried about COVID as an existential threat, I'm worried about the next virus that actually could be an existential threat. COVID really never had the chance to do that, but the next one can. That's what I'm more worried about. And I I hope that we, not only in in public health, but just in medicine, but as citizens, learn something from this that may help us the next time around, because it's uh, far more likely than not that there that. Maybe in the next two years, we'll have another pandemic. Next five years, we'll have another pandemic. So that's what I'm more concerned about. I wouldn't say COVID is over, but I think it's controllable, manageable. Uh, we'll have kind of surges, peaks and valleys, and we'll just live with it. But it's it's the next one that I'm concerned about. Well, I think we've kept Rob past his yeah, know. a little too long tonight. So, Julie... We have to hit him with our famous... I know. I have some good ones. I actually thought of some good ones this time. I feel like Jeremy always asked me to do one, and then I have one, and then I'm like, I can't remember. So quick rapid fire. All right. Let's hear it. Rob, didn't your daughter just get married not too long ago? She got married in 
March, yeah. March of this yeah. year. I think she's too young. She's 26. I think that was too young. But Whatever. What do I know? What do you know? You're her dad. Yeah. Did you give a father of the bride speech? I hope you did. I did. Was it awesome? Oh, of course I did. What did you talk about? Well, I don't remember much of it because, first of all, I had a couple of drinks. And secondly, <laughs> I, the, the, the damn video is still not even back yet. It's oh. been like five months. Is so it killing know. you inside so to I know how I did. you did? No, I, I I think I did okay. I just told a couple of stories. And actually, there's one that's even relevant for this uh, for this podcast. I'll just tell a quick story. Yeah. So when Jessica was about nine years old, my younger daughter, Megan, had is like obsessed with animals. She had one of these animal birthday parties. Mm. It, they, this animal, this crazy animal lady comes out and brings out all these animals. And, and all the kids think it's great. And the last animal she brings out is a bat. I mean, a live bat. No, rabies. And I'm standing there and I'm saying, oh, great. Everyone's going to get rabies. <laughs> and the, 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 cra- the crazy animal lady turns around and said, excuse me, sir, did I hear you say something about rabies? You know, bats don't carry rabies. And I said, oh, no. I said, well, ma'am, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you, but not only do bats carry rabies, like the only animal in this country that does. <laughs> Right? <laughs> she said, she goes, are you some kind of doctor? Yes. And Jessica, who's like nine years old, jumps out and said, he's an infectious disease specialist. With a cape. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah, so she, <laughs> so she had my back. That person you shouldn't have fucked with, is it? <laughs> yeah. She, she had my back. And that's the story that I told at the oh, wedding toast about how she had my back. What so, a great story. Yeah. So kind of weird having a kid getting married. But um, yeah. you know, it goes fast. So, Jeremy, you got little ones. So it's. Uh, I do. Yeah. It goes. I am a while, but. It goes really, really fast. I'll tell you, like they see blink, blink, and you miss it. So, based on your conversation, that I have at least a couple pandemics before my marriage. There's a saying in medicine that that we don't know if like the person picks the specialty or the specialty picks the person. Like it's just one of those things where like sometimes what's crazier, the chicken or the egg. And so Mm -hmm. I feel like probably every infectious disease doctor has to have a favorite infectious disease or a favorite bug. Mm -hmm. What is your favorite bug? That's a great question. You know, there's some bugs that have like really, really good names. And Julie, you were talking about one, Elizabeth Kingia, um, and then just Spect. I love those like Elizabeth Kingia. One of my favorite ones was the agent of scrub typhus. It's called Rickexia Sutsugamushi. Like that's one of my favorite ones too. <laughs> Never mm-hmm. seen a case, but it's a great name. There's a fungus, Malassezia furfur. That's one of my that's favorite a good ones. One. The so, so that causes um, the tinea versicolor. Yeah, versicolor. So, yeah. so there's a few bugs, but I will tell you like. I'll just tell you really quick about like how I ended up as an infectious disease specialist. Yeah. So I went to med school in Connecticut and I just wanted to see another part of the country for three years just to get away from my family mostly. <laughs> so I came out. Yeah, they and, have dentists there that don't use gloves. Yeah, gross. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I interviewed at Rush. It was like a Saturday morning in January. And the person who was randomly assigned to interview me was this guy named Stu Levin. And Stu was, mm-hmm. turns out, unbeknownst to me, was the absolute king of infectious diseases like in the in the country. Like like he was, man, he's trained every infectious disease fellow. And he's just such a remarkable, brilliant man. To this day, the smartest person I've ever met. And I wanted to do what he did. So he was like an immediate, that's why I wanted to go to Rush and I wanted to do what he did because I, I was so taken with this guy, how smart he was and just a genius. And so he became an immediate mentor, and that's how I ended up in the field. Because otherwise, had he been a cardiologist, I probably would have been a cardiologist. So it's really it's kind of random how we end up in in the specialties that we choose. But that was my story. Almost everybody just has a mentor story. It's just like I want to be that person. Julie, you want to ask one more? Yeah, you want I want to ask uh, one more just because it's a dumb, funny yeah. one. That it'll be a quick answer. 
I can't remember if you're one of these infectious disease guys, Rob. Are you against neckties? Are you, do you think neckties are fomites and you shouldn't be worn, at least not in the, in the clinical setting? So you have to balance two things. One is the risk of transmission. The other is looking good, right? So, <laughs> if looks could kill, but if, this time if you might. look good, if you look good, you feel good, right? So <laughs> I I like to dress well. So I think you know. Listen, mm-hmm. if you and I have seen this before, you know, a surgeon is leaning over a patient with an open abdominal wound and their tie is flopping oh, around. Yeah. yeah, I think that's I think that's risky. It's worse than you got hands. your tie on and your and you got your tie and your coat's buttoned up. Um, I really don't think there's much risk there if you're washing your hands, which hopefully you are. Mm -hmm. So I know in England, you can't wear, you have to wear short sleeve shirts, no jewelry on your hands, no ties. Here, I just think it's behavior. If you're taking proper care of whatever you're wearing, you swear. But yeah, I wear ties. I think that. I love it. I know you did. You're not a bow tie man. You're not a bow tie man. I'm not a bow tie, not a bow tie person, except for the tuxedo. (laughs) But I think, I think it's, there are bigger fish to fry than whether or not you should wear it, wear it. You just want to look hot forever. Good answer. You got to look good to feel good. You heard it here first. Exactly. Rob, do you want to let people know, are you on social media? Can people find more stuff? Where where can they hear you talk about the CDC and its failures some more? (laughs) So, I, you know, it's interesting. I do a lot of stuff on Channel 7, on the Channel 7 Morning News with Tanya and Terrell. We kind mm-hmm. of become friends. Um, Those guys are so uh, great. So if you actually just Google my name and with Channel 7, and I've done a bunch on Channel 9 as well, too, you can find it. So I was on Twitter for a while, but I, I took it off because of the trolls. People yeah. are so horrible like it's just and and twitter absolutely brings out yeah it just brings these awful people out of the woodwork and so i just stopped it wasn't worth it to me and i put some stuff on facebook but then i I just limited it to kind of friends because i didn't want general comments from it so i have an unusual name so if you google it and covid you'll find like 50 things you'll be able to watch and I'm on pr- fairly frequently, so most of the stuff is current. Mm-hmm. Be able to find some good stuff, but otherwise, I don't really I don't advertise my services really anywhere, just because of uh, the backlash that that you got. Yeah. I was yeah. I did one interview on the Score Radio, and it was with uh, it was when Aaron Rodgers decided that he wasn't mm-hmm. that he claimed he was immunized, but yeah. he wasn't vaccinated. Yeah. And sure. we did a great thing with That's Danny Parkins awesome. on the Score. He would like. He would play clips of what Aaron Rodgers said, and then I would rebut and say whether it was true or not. We actually had a lot of fun with that interview. And then there was that's awesome. Like some some Twitter troll, and it, like if you if you give me a second, I could probably find it because I saved it. I just thought it was like the funniest thing that I'd ever seen. And this is kind of why I'm not like this was on their Twitter feed. I remember I just love on your Instagram. It's get cultured on all things infectious disease is your tagline, and I think that's perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, here here it is. So this was in, uh, so I it was November sixth, twenty twenty one. I did an interview with uh, with Danny Parkins on the Score Radio. It was a really great. Da- By the way, Danny Parkins is a phenomenal sports radio yes, journalist. He He's yes. won like national awards. So they put me on. I talked about. Aaron Rodgers and and why he's an ass basically, um, I, and I basically said that he's entitled to his own opinions. His his employer doesn't require a vaccine. He's entitled to his own opinions, but it's irresponsible to use your platform as a celebrity to spew misinformation, which is exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. So this is what somebody Thanks. called Blaze at Chi Illinois four twenty. 
said, dude, <laughs> you guys put on a liberal shit for nothing doctor who gets money based on the amount of people he jabs. LMFAO, what a crock of lies. He's a charlatan masquerading as a physician, pushing a narrative of totalitarianism all while bowing down to do the bidding of big pharma. Uh, <laughs> standing like, ovation. Boom. 20. You win. You won boom. the internet. You won everything. Boom. You get the big prize. The prize is. I'm like, I'm like, seriously, Jack dude. Shit. Like, that's. That's why I'm not on. That's why I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Twitter much either. But I that just brings me joy <laughs> watching people do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so we will have uh, your name and and how people can Google you in the show notes, which will be great. Right. We uh, always finish with one call to action. I think one of the things that we've set forward for our listeners, you have seen that we actually do use our friends and our listeners' questions to get these episodes. Time, so baby. I want you to join our Facebook group, friends of your doctor friends, start a conversation and ask some questions because we're going to use them. Yeah. So do that. We're listening and we're listening all the time. We want your feedback because we care about, you know, what you guys want to listen to because that's the whole point of this damn yeah. thing. And so that I can talk to my old friends <laughs> that I haven't yeah. talked to in years. So, hey, just ask me a question and I'll find somebody from the woodwork that I haven't talked to you know, in a couple of years face to face, it'll just be a nice reunion for me. But I think, you know, Rob, you told us a lot of really great information here. You know, what you've given for, for our listeners is invaluable talking about, you know, a little bit of the information about monkeypox, who should be getting a vaccine? How is it transmitted? You know, should our kids, should you be worried about your children going to school? Answers no. You just keep screening and making sure that you're taking care of your kids the same way that you've been doing a great job doing so. Um, we talked a little bit about COVID and where we're at now and what the future looks like. And uh, I really, really love that you've been with us today. And I think we've provided some really great non-bullshit information and some really great anecdotes and stories. And uh, I just, I love reconnecting with wonderful people like you. Yeah, so this is really, right back at you. really great. So to finish it up, I think, you know what? Vaccines save lives. Listen to your doctor friends. Yeah. Peace. Peace. The amazing music is credited to Skillcell with Pixabay licensure. What the Health Podcast is meant for educational and entertainment purposes only. The contents of this podcast should not be taken as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others. Please consult a medical professional for any medical issues that you may be having. The contents of this podcast are the opinions of the hosts only and do not reflect the opinions of their employers or affiliations. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall Dr. Julie Bruni or Dr. Jeremy Allen or any guest of the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast.